My name's Sam. I'm on staff here. I know most of y'all. Uh, but those of you I haven't had the pleasure of meeting recently, I'm the uh, director of college ministry and adult discipleship, the Sunday schools, the small groups. If you need to get plugged in, you want information about those things, I'm the guy uh, that you talk to. And I have the privilege of uh, preaching and teaching this morning uh, from this passage. Um, you know, it's dangerous to presume. And it's even more dangerous because most of us don't know what that word means. Uh, because we don't use the word presume uh, very often. We don't uh, accuse someone of presumption or presumptuousness uh, very often. And ignorance can be a, a deadly thing. Uh, to presume, uh, uh, presuming is, uh, it means that you would assume something, but you'd pre-assume it. You're assuming something beforehand uh, without proper evidence. So, um, for example, like when you presume that the, pizza, the piece of pizza you're about to eat has cooled down, and only to find out that what looked like pizza was actually um, a pocket of molten sauce and cheese at like 7,000 degrees. So you, you presumed falsely. Uh, or like when you presume, and I've done this, uh, that the patch of weeds in your backyard wasn't poison ivy. As you go, is it three leaves? Is it four leaves? I mean, what's the, what's the rhyme? Well, it's, surely it's okay. And then you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got a rash cover your entire body. Now, these are just a few examples, and they're kind of silly examples because the stakes are pretty low. You know, a, a burned tongue, itchy ankles. But in weightier matters, in eternal matters, in spiritual matters, presumption, assuming something beforehand without proper evidence, uh, it can be deadly. And in this section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's addressing this attitude of presumption. Now, among the Christians at Corinth, there were a group of people who were really confident in their own spirituality. They were really confident in their own maturity. Uh, and they even say in chapter 8, verse 1, that they all have knowledge. They know, they've read the Bible. They understand the doctrines of the gospel. They're mature. They knew that the pagan gods that were worshipped in the temples in Corinth weren't real gods. They didn't have any real power. Uh, and they knew that there was no law against Christians eating meat sacrificed to those idols. right? Because the idols themselves have no power. And so they knew there's no law in the Bible against doing this thing. Uh, they said, we're free from rules. Uh, we're Christians now. And Paul even quotes them later on in this chapter in verse 23 as saying, all things are lawful for us now. But there were some other people in Corinth whose consciences, consciences weren't okay with eating the meat sacrificed to idols. And so they had this dispute among them, among the Christians with the weaker conscience that weren't okay eating this meat that had been connected to idol worship, and then the strong Christians, the mature Christians, the wise Christians, the knowledgeable Christians, and they felt like it was perfectly fine because it didn't bother their conscience. So these people wrote to Paul, and one of the things they asked essentially was, hey, listen, if our consciences are fine... If we're not bothered by it, it's good for us to eat this food, right? Uh, so Paul, just give us the rule. Are we supposed to eat it or not? But Paul is not really interested in giving them a rule. Because he knows that for them and for us, 
Obedience to God isn't a matter of rules. It's a matter of the heart. And especially in these gray areas where you have different Christians agreeing. We talked about some of them last week. Uh, how you're supposed to dress, how much you're supposed to spend on what you dress yourself with, uh, what you're supposed to eat, how much you're supposed to eat and drink of the things you eat and drink, where you're supposed to live, how much you're supposed to spend on your house, where do you go for a vacation, what do you do on your vacation, what's allowed, what's not. Um, in these kind of gray areas, simply making a rule won't get to the heart of the matter because the heart of the matter is our hearts. And so instead of giving them a rule, like a good pastor, Paul decides to give them a sermon. And in this little section, he gives them what really is a sermon. And like any um, great sermon, it's got three sections. It's got three main points, three main parts. It's a sermon about the history of God's people. Part one is the history of God's blessings. Part two is the history of our failures. And part three is the history of God's faithfulness. And all the way through the chapter, Paul is going to underline for them the importance of Christian freedom. He's going to hold up this glorious truth that we have been set free from sin and death because of the gospel. Amen? I mean, that's a great, great truth. And he's saying, yes, you have been set free. But watch how you use your freedom. Watch how you use your freedom. Paul is warning us, and he's warning them, about the dangers of presumptuousness. The dangers of assuming beforehand without evidence that whatever we feel like doing, whatever we want to do, is probably going to be okay with God. He's warning us against overconfidence, and he's seeking to show them that as free people... We must watch out. We must, we must use our freedom carefully because our hearts, like we sang, are prone to wander. So part one of Paul's sermon, it starts right here in verse one. It's the history of God's blessings. Paul starts out by reminding this elite, this strong, this wise group of people at the church, the story of the Israelites. Now, he's just gotten done. If you just look back in chapter nine, verse 27. Uh, Paul has just finished holding himself up as an example of how a Christian might choose to limit his exercise of freedom. Might, might seek to be extra careful, might seek to be self-disciplined so that, he says, even I, Paul the Apostle, who knows a thing or two about the gospel, who's pretty mature, who's pretty wise, who's pretty strong, that even I, Paul says, I beat my body and I make it my slave. So that even after doing all this ministry, I wouldn't be disqualified. And I'm imagining that the group of strong Christians at Corinth are going, Paul would be disqualified? I mean, he must not be as strong as, he thought, as we thought he was, because we're not worried about being disqualified. And so Paul's holding himself up as this example, and he's saying, I have to be careful. And you have to be careful. He's saying, we, Christians, we need to be careful. Because Paul knows his heart. And he knows that just because God has set us free, just because God has spread out his blessings wide across the covenant people of God, people who have freely received his blessings sometimes end up disqualifying themselves. 
And so Paul is warning against that. And to prove his point, he's taking us on a tour through the Old Testament. First, he's showing how wide God spreads his blessings to his covenant people. Remember the Israelites, Paul's saying? You know, they were set free too. Uh, They received their freedom. They were slaves in Egypt, subject to Pharaoh, and, and then God rescued them. And, and Paul kind of outlines these four experiences of God's great blessing that they all experienced. Uh, first, uh, they were all led through the desert by the cloud of God's presence. All right, it, it, This is a reference to Exodus 13. Remember, d- d- just listen to this. The Lord went before them by day. They came out of Egypt. He came before, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire, he gave them light. So that they might travel by day and by night. What an incredible blessing. Not only that, they all passed through the Red Sea. You remember the story. Pharaoh's army is coming up behind them. And they're, they're trapped kind of between the army and the sea. And so what does God do? He parts the sea. And this is what it says in Exodus 14. The people of Israel, all the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea. Right through the sea on dry ground. And the waters being a wall to them. On their right hand and on their left. They all passed through the sea. And, and not only that, Paul says something that's kind of strange. And if you just read over it, it it's going to be a little bit confusing. He says they all received baptism. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. What does Paul mean? Well, and, and he's going to do this all throughout um, this little section, but he does it really, and all the New Testament writers do this. They look back into the Old Testament and they see patterns and they see pictures of things that are fulfilled in Christ for the New Testament church. So instead of seeing this clear line between the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God, um, Paul is seeing a gradual growth in God's revelation. That there's not a different in type, but there's a difference in degree. So the new covenant people of God are not a different type of community. They're a different degree of God's people. They're a fuller revelation of God's covenant community. And they have a fuller revelation of the gospel. So just, just imagine this. Paul's looking back into the Old Testament. And because he has this idea in his mind, he's, he's kind of looking through um, the window of the gospel into the stories of the Old Testament. He's looking through the lens of Christ into the Old Testament. Uh, this is what uh, he's doing. He looks back and he sees something in common between the experience of Christians today and the experience of the Israelites. Paul sees water, for instance. He sees people at the beginning of their journey passing through water. And what does he think immediately? He thinks, oh yeah, that's like baptism. So he's saying these people in the Old Testament, they had a form of baptism. And what was their baptism? Well, he, Paul knows that the baptism is a sign. It's a rite of initiation into a covenant community. And so Christians, when we're baptized into the church... Uh, We're baptized into membership in this covenant community, the head of which is Christ. So you might even say Christians are baptized into the church of Christ or into Christ. In the same way, Paul looks back and he sees that the Israelites left Egypt. And when they passed through the water, it was as though God was washing Egypt off of them. He was washing them through the waters of baptism 
in the cloud and in the sea and baptizing them into the new covenant community that he was forming, the head of which was Moses. So they were getting baptized into this new group of people that they were going to belong to, baptized into Moses, who was the head of the community. And when you think about it like that, it kind of makes sense, right? But this is the way Paul's mind works. Uh, they were connected to Moses, who was their covenant head, who was their covenant leader. And not only that, not only did these people have a type of baptism, but they had a type of communion, a type of supper. They had a, a type of spiritual food and spiritual drink that they enjoyed when they were on their sojourn through the wilderness. In verse 3, it says that he gave them spiritual food and spiritual drink. God provided manna in the desert. Remember, they didn't have any bread. Psalm 78 describes it like this. He rained down on them manna to eat, gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. In the midst of scarcity, in the midst of the desert, God fed them with manna from heaven. Not only that, God provided water in the desert. Uh, this is what it says in Exodus 17. Behold, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you, Moses, shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so. So God, it, it, Paul is saying, I'm looking back into the, the story of the Exodus, and I'm seeing God providing food, God providing drink for his people. And it's real physical food and drink, but it's spiritual in the sense that there's spiritual significance attached to it. They experience some kind of um, ceremony, some kind of sign of inclusion into the community. And they experience this continuing sign of communion in the community where they continue to eat the food and drink the water that was provided for them. So it was this sign of God's ongoing presence uh, with them. And every single one of the Israelites enjoyed these blessings. You notice how many times Paul says, they all experienced this. They all did this. They all did this. He repeats it over and over and over again. Why? Because he's trying to show the Corinthians that there's not this elite group in the Israelites. That they all experience the same blessings. And he looks back into the Exodus and he says, they all had great experiences. They all saw wonderful things. They all received these special, spiritual, sacred privileges from God, but they didn't all make it. Verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown. They were strewn about. They were scattered in the wilderness. So, Paul's saying to the confident Corinthians, all of them were blessed. And guess what? Most of them didn't receive the land that was promised. And even the one who you would have thought would have been the elite head of the group, Moses himself, he got to see the promised land from a distance, but he didn't get to enter into it. And so he's saying to the Corinthians, you're still feeling confident that you're strong? You're still feeling confident that because God has rescued you, you might not need to exercise effort continuously in, in, in trying to stay faithful. You don't need to keep your guard up. Are you sure that these idols, these things that you're involved with in the world, they're not going to take you by surprise? Are you sure? Because 
Some of the Israelites were sure that they would make it, and they didn't. So we want to ask, right? We want to ask, what was it? What, what was the problem? What happened? Why didn't they make it? What kept them from, receive, from receiving the promise? Why did they fail? And the answer is the Israelites failed in the wilderness because they followed the desire of their hearts. God had washed Egypt off of them. But Egypt was still inside of them. And because they were so long in the, the patterns and the rhythms of life in Egypt, it, it took a long time for them to adjust to walking into the patterns of God's grace and dependence on him. And just as it is for us, I mean, we've been long in the world. We've spent a long time learning how to sin. And it takes time for us to learn a new rhythm, to learn a new pattern of walking in God's grace. And this is the second chapter of the story. Uh, the first chapter is a history of blessing, but the second chapter is really a history, a record of failure. Verse 6 says that the problem in the wilderness was that the people acted against God because their desires were opposed to God. They stopped following God because they followed their own hearts. Paul is saying, look at your heart. He's saying, examine your heart. Beware of following your heart. He gives four examples of their following their own evil desires in the wilderness. The first example, verse 7, idolatry. They committed idolatry because they exchanged God's unique glory for something created. They made a golden calf. God rescued them out of Egypt. And uh, Moses was up on the mountain, ironically, getting instructions from God on how he wants his people to worship him. And down the mountain, people were deciding, I think we should worship God this way. You know what they used to have in Egypt? They used to have these, these pretty little statues. And they were beautiful. I mean, they were golden. You could just... Instead of having to pray to this invisible God, you could pray to this visible thing. That's great. Let's do that. And so what they did is they had Aaron, the high priest, make a golden calf for them. He received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool. He made a golden calf. And then Aaron said this. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 32.4. Notice they weren't trying to worship a false god. They were trying to worship the one true God, the God who rescued them. But they were worshiping the true God in an untrue way. So idolatry isn't just worshiping a false God, but it's worshiping the one true God in any way other than the one true God has prescribed for you. What the Israelites literally did is they made themselves a sacred cow. That's where that phrase comes from. You know what a sacred cow is. You know, a sacred cow is something that's so important to you, you can't give it up. It's the one thing that after everything else falls, the sacred cow has to stay because you need it. You need it for your security. You need it for pleasure. You need it for power. Everything else can go, but the sacred cow has to stay. We have a lot of these. And the difficulty about idolatry is... An idolatrous heart doesn't just say, um, I want to leave God for this thing. An idolatrous heart says, I want to keep God and keep this thing. 
Second example of faithlessness. Sexual immorality. Paul says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And then 23,000 of them fell in the desert in a single day. Now, if you look, he's quoting Numbers 25.1. And what had happened is the Israelites were sojourning through the desert. And there was a group of prostitutes from some of the foreign tribes. And so they decided we're going to indulge our sexual desires in ways outside what God has prescribed. And God, he killed them in the desert. 23,000 of them. And so... um, We've already talked in this series about the pull that sexual desire has on the human heart, and we know that those in Corinth were really familiar with this. And I think we're aware that this is a powerful tug for all of us. And Paul is saying, watch out. Do you think you're stronger than these Israelites who saw the things they saw, who experienced the things they experienced? For the Israelites, uh, both the problem of idolatry and both the failure of sexual immorality are really failures of self-denial. What They chose the road of self-satisfaction rather than self-denial. And the last two failures, uh, testing and grumbling, well, they're really failures of unbelief. God describes the testing uh, in verse 9, that they put... Christ to the test, he says. And this is, again, this is Paul looking back in the Old Testament and seeing Jesus. Because who did they really put to the test? Well, um, Numbers 21.5, it says, The people spoke against God and against Moses, their covenant head, their covenant leader. And they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Worthless food? Miraculous food? (laughs) Spiritual bread, the bread of angels, spiritual water, you loathe it? Was it true that there was no food in the wilderness? No. There was miraculous food that God provided for them every day. But they tested God. They pushed God. They tried his patience because they rejected what he had provided. And so what they looked at God providing generously to them and they said, you're not really providing. And they scorned his gift. And then they grumbled. Numbers 14, 2. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, I wish we had died in the land of Egypt. Or I wish we had died in Egypt rather than that we would die in this wilderness. Do you see what they're doing? Grumbling is, re- is really just unbelief kind of, you know, redirected from being pointed towards God and just being pointed towards one of God's representatives. So all the people that are God's representatives, uh, his kind of vice regents uh, in your life, uh, it might be a, a parent, it might be a spouse, it might be a boss, it might be a friend, it might be a pastor, it might be a leader, it might even be the government, <laughs> are grumbling reveals a heart of unbelief and disobedience. We want what we want, and we don't want what God is providing. This complaining, murmuring, grumbling like this, it seems small, but really it is a deadly, deadly sin. Paul is saying simple things, earthly things, 
seemingly powerless things like food, sexual desire, the words we speak, even the way we speak them, they're not small things. They're an index to the desires of our hearts. And when we examine them, we see that even though these things might not have any power in themselves, our hearts have these powerful attachments to them. And they can capture our hearts. They can be stuck by these things. And when we look at our hearts, we see that just like the Israelites, our hearts are naturally full of cravings, naturally full of of evil desires and full of unbelief. We know the problem is not with the created thing in itself. Like the Corinthians knew, the, the food itself isn't an issue. Our hearts are the issue. And anytime a good thing created by God becomes more important than listening and following after God, well, then that good thing has become a God thing. And now that good thing has become a bad thing for you. This is how the human heart works. Uh, John Calvin says it this way. He describes the human heart as a factory of idols that we can take almost anything in the world and turn it into an idol. Because our hearts are bent on doing this. And they, and they have this pull to resist the true worship of God. So for us, we need to ask ourselves, where do we see ourselves in this story? Is there some created thing? Is there some good thing that God has given you that you feel like you have to have? That without it, you feel like you can't live? Is it something you eat? Is it something you drink? Is it a relationship? Is it something you own? Is it something that you want to carry with you that you won't let go of? That God could never take away? That God could never say was off limits to you? What is it? Could it be that that thing has become an idol? Paul is saying, Corinthians, Christ Community Church, We need to look, we need to find ourselves in this story. We need to recognize that our hearts are prone to failure. That left to our own devices, we will fail. But is this the end of the story? Are we doomed to just fail over and over and over? Well, praise God, the answer is no. Our failure does not get the final word. And at the end of the story, we see after everything else has fallen... God is still standing. At the end of this story, Paul wants us to see that even though we are failures, our God is still faithful. As Paul looks back, we've already talked about how he sees the gospel and all these different pictures, but what God sees, what Paul sees over and over and over again is what he underlines here in verse 13. And I want this phrase to just ring in your minds. These three simple words, God is faithful. Despite our unbelief, despite our failures, God is faithful. And he sees throughout this whole story our faithful God working for us. First, our faithful God is working to correct us. See, in verse 6 and then verse 11, uh, Paul is mentioning that these things happened in the past for our instruction, for your benefit, for my benefit. God caused these things to happen, and as a mark of his faithfulness to you and to me, 
He didn't let them be forgotten, but he wanted to have them written down so that you and I could be corrected by them, so that you and I could be instructed by them. So Paul's saying when we look at the story of God's people, when we look at this Bible, we see it as another mark of God's blessing. So God preserved these things in Scripture for us so that we would be instructed, so that we would read his word, that it would make us aware of the dangers of idolatry in our own heart, so that when we're presented with the bait of temptation, we'd see the hook buried beneath it. Now, this correction that Paul says is being offered, this is, this is really for the strong. This is for those uh, who think that they can stand on their own, who are confident in themselves, and they're not resting in God's power, but in their own strength. Um, the people who think they are standing, who said, we're free now, God won't let us fall. To these people who thought they were standing, Paul says, you need to take heed. You need to watch out or you will fall. Watch out. Let the scripture correct you. In verse 12, he's saying, open your eyes. I want you to see yourself. Look at yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and let it correct you. And this is the way uh, Peter says it in Second uh, Peter three seventeen and 18. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, I want you to take care that you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and that you would lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying, what Peter's saying, is drink in God's word. Grow in God's word. Let his word instruct you. Let it correct you. Let it admonish you so that you would learn to desire what is good and you wouldn't desire what is evil. So that you'd be broken from trusting in yourself that no one would glory in themselves and their own strength, but they'd glory in God's strength. For the strong in Corinth, they needed to hear God's word correcting them. They needed to be humbled. They needed to be broken. But what about the weak? What about those with the weak consciences who are always so terrified of sinning against God that they didn't want to even go near anything that had anything to do with idol sacrifice? That they were afraid to even look at the meat? What about the weak? What about those who don't have any confidence that they will be able to stand the temptations in the wilderness? What does Paul say to them? Well, he says God is faithful. He's not just working to correct us. He's also working to protect us in temptation. In verse 13, Paul is speaking to you. If you're one of the anxious, if you're one of the weak, if you're afraid of falling into temptation... Your insecurity, your self-doubt, your weakness will not be fatal. God will not allow your weakness to make you fall. If you truly belong to him, God is saying, my power is greater than your weakness. What he's saying here is if, if you feel like you're in a situation where you're powerless to keep from sinning, where you really feel like you have no choice, He's saying, cheer up, listen. No temptation has seized you, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. What it really means in the Greek is that no temptation has attached itself to you. Do you ever feel that way? Like an evil desire, like a temptation is just suctioning on you like a leech. 
He's saying, no temptation has attached itself to you that is not common. God has dealt with this before. Your brothers and sisters have dealt with these things before. And God is faithful. And even though you feel like you can't help but give into it, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. God is even in control of your temptations. And if you feel like you have no choice, like you have no option but to give in to sin, Paul is gently saying to us and to you, that's not true. Because God is sovereign over your temptations, if you belong to him, he's not going to allow you to be so tempted that you have no choice in the matter. So, so what this means is for us, uh, for the Christian, if you sin, it's because we chose to sin. And if you look back in your own life, even in the times where you felt like the temptation was the worst, at the, at the moment where you gave in, you know it was because it's what you wanted to do. God is not forcing your hand. And he's not making Satan force your hand. And what God has promised to do is he's promised alongside the temptation to provide an escape hatch, to provide a way out. If you would look for it, if you would pray for it, if you would ask for it, if you would accept it. So God is saying, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to walk alongside you. And, and, and we might ask the question, okay, I mean, if God's going to rescue us, well, why would he even lead us into temptation in the first place? Um, why would he even let us fall into temptation is maybe a better way of putting it. Why not just avoid the temptation altogether? I'd like to sign up for that. Uh, and the answer is, is that God wants to make us stronger. In verse 13, at the very end, his goal is that you would be able to endure He's playing a long game with your life. He wants to teach you how to be strong. He knows that you're weak and he wants to grow you in his strength. He wants you to teach you how to depend on him. And the school of obedience, the school of strength is temptation. It's God's gym, uh, despite what the God's gym t-shirts say, um, if you've ever seen those. God's gym is temptation. That's where we learn how to be uh, stronger, how to bear up under the weight. But God doesn't just show his faithfulness in that he corrects us, not just that he protects us, but finally he shows his faithfulness in that he redeems us. This is the greatest of all his work for us. He works to redeem us. And in verse 11, Paul makes this, this kind of really cosmic statement He's looking back on the history of God's people and he says, these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction, our instruction, people like you and me, on whom the end of the ages has come. I mean, that's such a rich, rich phrase. You and I live at the end of the ages. The NIV translates it, the fulfillment of the ages. We live at the time to which all of human history has been building and preparing. And we have a better example. We have a better model to follow than our brothers and sisters in the Exodus. 
We have a better example than Moses, who right at the end of his life put God to the test, and then he failed to get into the promised land. And all throughout the history of God's people, when they went into the wilderness, they were tested. And every single time, throughout the whole Old Testament, when they went into the wilderness, they failed the test. Until Jesus. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, he's baptized and then it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the river and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted by the devil. And wouldn't you know he was tempted by pleasure? He was tempted by power. He was tempted to doubt God's word. He was tempted with food and drink. He was tested. And for the first time in human history, when God's covenant representative went into the desert, he passed the test. This is the way it puts it in Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet he was without sin. And because we live on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are closer to the kingdom of God. We can see it breaking in over the horizon. We live at this time. We are so close to the kingdom of God just breaking into this world in ways that Moses, in ways that the Israelites would have never dreamed of. And that's a little bit of what Paul means when he's talking about we're at the end of the ages. We're at this time when the age to come, when the kingdom of God is, has broken into this world. And it's, over, it's almost like there's this time of overlap now where we've already been saved but we're not yet there. We've already been set free, but we're not in the promised land yet. Just like the Israelites. We've been set free from Egypt. Yes! It's already come, but still there's this overlap where we're not in the promised land yet. And so the Bible describes us as really a church in Exodus where God's people were wandering, were sojourning through this world, the wilderness of this age. But we're waiting because we know that the new age has broken in that it's coming, and that God is faithful, and that the old things are passing away, and that the new things, behold, they're coming. And until that day, we're journeying through this world, and we must not trust in ourselves. We must trust in God, in his power, in his faithfulness, in his dependence. Because we live in the overlap of the ages, if you're strong, you need to remember that you're not in heaven yet. You need to remember that you're, you're, you're not fully redeemed yet, that there's still sin residing inside your heart. One day, hallelujah, it won't be there. But right now, you need to be watchful. You need to take care. If you're weak, you need to know that the age to come is coming. <laughs> and that God has put his spirit inside your heart. That he has sealed you. That he will protect you. That he will go before you. This is our story. We're the church in Exodus. We're not home yet, but God has promised to bring us home. And along the way, he has promised to build us up. Not to make us strong in ourselves, but to make us strong in him. And God has given us freedom. Freedom not to use however we want. Freedom not, not to be self-confident, but freedom to become God-confident, to become Christ-confident, to depend on him, to cling to him, and to trust that he will provide the help we need, that he will really take care of us, even in silly, small things like what we eat, 
what we drink. Paul puts it like this at the very beginning of the letter to the Corinthians. He says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, God will sustain you to the end. He will keep you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says again, God is faithful. How does God keep us? How does God sustain us? He gives us his word. He gives us his church. Uh, He gives us the ability to worship him together. And in a special way, uh, he keeps us through this meal that we're about to eat together this morning. You know, Paul describes this meal as a means of God's grace. This is a spiritual meal that God has given us um, as he reveals himself to us. Uh, Later on in Corinthians, he says this. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Whenever you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is a family meal for God's people. This isn't just our church meal of Christ Community Church. If you've uh, trusted in Jesus Christ, if you believed in him, if you're baptized, we'd invite you to come here and enjoy the meal together uh, with us. If you don't know where you stand, I'd ask you just to, to think and ask who you're trusting in to get you all the way home. Uh, the elders are going to come forward and um, they're going to help serve the meal and then the deacons will come down and dismiss you uh, by row and the music will pray. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for keeping us. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. And thank you for this meal. I ask that we would take it in a way that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.